Well, I want to wish you all a happy new year. I want to begin this new year actually thinking about the end. I know that's not hard for some of you. We're already all thinking about the end of winter. Please let it come soon. Uh, It was zero degrees, I think, when I entered my car this morning. But more than just an end point, I want want us to think about an end goal. And again, many of us are thinking of end goals right now. If you've made resolutions to get into shape or to lose weight or, or perhaps be more disciplined, you're, you're thinking about the end goal and you're thinking about what it takes to get there. In regard to the Christian life, we need to think about finishing well. And we need to think about that not just simply at the end, in the home stretch but wherever you are in the journey. Finishing well, what does it take? In theological terms, we're talking about the doctrine of perseverance. It's a vitally important doctrine, but it's frequently misunderstood. Perseverance is that idea that those whom God has called, he will bring to the end that he will safeguard them and protect them and establish them in faith throughout their lives to eternal salvation. But it is confused often. I think on the one hand, many of us uh, resort to a bit of fatalism when we think about this. That this, uh, that this perseverance happens completely irrespective of us and that we experience it only passively. That is something that happens to us and that we're not involved at all. Makes me sort of think about uh, going to the dentist and being in the dentist chair, right? I mean, all you can do is just endure it. You can't say anything. You can't do anything. You just let him work on you. But is that really what perseverance is? And if it was, why bother talking about it? Because that sort of fatalism would mean that there really isn't much for us to even think about or to do. On the other hand, we can talk about this doctrine in terms uh, that are merely humanistic. It's all up to me. God helps them who help themselves. In that way, I I live the Christian life as if I'm in Mission Impossible. I, I just receive from some uh, you know faceless entity a mission, and if I choose to accept it, then well, I'm on my own to complete it. But it's neither of these things. Yes, perseverance is a work of God. It is by God's power alone. But God's power is never alone. Listen to how John Murray writes, uh, puts it this way. He says, The elect are those who are kept by the power of God through faith. And then he says, It is not a keeping for a little while, but to the end. And it is not keeping irrespective of faith, but through faith. Faith here is no work. It is an instrument that that is used to, uh, to receive what God has given. But it's something that we need to nourish and strengthen and something that we need to think vitally about. And it's an important message for us, especially when we come to a passage like ours. Here we see David, finally crowned king, after the long journey through 1 Samuel, he's crowned in chapter 2, but it really isn't until chapter 5 
that his reign finally gets off the ground. I want us to look actually at this entire section, though we're only going to focus in on chapter 2 and just touch on the the details that happen through uh, chapters 2 through 4. And we see in this warnings, yes, but also the signs of a persevering faith, a faith that's empowered by the gospel under the conviction of the God who is there to bring it finally to fruition. In the end, we see a God who cares in the midst of the mess. And so let's turn to this now, but let's first begin by prayer. Pray with me. Lord, we do need your word. We need it, for without it, we do not have faith. Without it, we don't know you. Without it, we're lost. Bring this light into our lives and and soften our hearts to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2 Samuel begins with such promise. Saul, this faithless king who spent almost the entirety of 1 Samuel pursuing David, his rival, is now dead. And David finally comes to the throne. And if you've sort of endured 1 Samuel, now you're thinking, all right, at last we get to the good stuff. We're done with the bad king, now let's bring on the good king. And let's let's look at the, the good example to follow. But then everything, almost immediately after David is crowned king, goes to disaster. David is anointed in in verse 4 of chapter 2. But then constantly, for the next three chapters, we see war, betrayal, revenge, murder, all throughout Israel, all even done by the people claiming to be the people of God. In these three intervening chapters, we're struck by this by this decay and this faithlessness, all in the context of experiencing what should be Israel's greatest king. I'm at the the point of uh, my parenting when I am constantly reading many, many books to my children. In fact, I should probably say I'm only reading a few books many, many times to my children. They just tend to love certain ones, and and the repetition can drive you crazy. And so I I tend to change some of the details to keep myself awake while I'm reading. I don't usually get away with it. After a while, I get, wait, that's not how it goes. And it's probably what you're thinking here. This isn't how the story is supposed to go. We're done with Saul. Let's get on with the good stuff. This is God's chosen king. Why is this now happening? David isn't anointed for five minutes before a civil war breaks out in the country. Things in Israel are a mess. You go through the whole litany of things that happen here. But go back and read chapters 2 through 5. And you're going to get overwhelmed with, with how in the world any of this relates to you. It starts out well. David does exactly what Saul never did. David inquires of the Lord. And the Lord responds. He answers David and gives him an encouraging message. And we're thinking, yes, we're on the right track. 
But then, did you notice, God does not speak in the rest of the chapter. In fact, he doesn't speak for the rest of the next four chapters. Is he absent? Did he go on vacation? What's going on? And why can't we just skip to that point when God comes back on stage and things work out well? But I want to say, I think it's vitally important that we read this section. It's important that the Bible doesn't skip over this. Because we need to read about this mess. A church that hides its dirty laundry is not doing any, anybody any good. It's doing a disservice to themselves and a disservice to the world. For many of us have this false view of what the Christian life should be like. We think once we're on God's team, everything's going to work out well for us. We expect things to operate perfectly. That there'll be this sense of justice and reward. And that if you're a Christian, well, all your problems will start to go away. In fact, if you live faithfully, you should be happy, right? And then if not, well, then the questions start to come. If I find myself depressed or sad, I start to think, well, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. If my life doesn't seem to be working out, if I, I never seem to be getting off the ground with my career or my relationships, I start to think, well, maybe God doesn't love me because God really takes care of those he loves, right? It's this false view of the world that have made many Christians disillusioned. When life isn't what we expect, rather than question our expectations, we tend to question our faith. When God, we think, is silent, we say, well, he doesn't care, or he doesn't exist. You face the complexity and messiness of this world around you, and you start to think, well, hey, that that rosy picture that Christians always paint, that must be wrong. I'm more mature now. I see that the world is 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 a lot messier than, than Christianity points out. Guys, that's not the message the Bible shows you. If you think it's supposed to be a rosy picture, look again. That's why I'm glad this passage is in here. It shows us there were no glory days for the people of God. Have you been around people who talk about the glory days? In a moment, it's sometimes supposed to be encouraging. Yes, it can go back to that at some time. But sometimes it's really frustrating. It makes you feel like you're not fitting in. You're not doing what it is. Although they were glory back then. Guys, there was never glory days for the people of God. It wasn't there in David's reign. It wasn't there in the apostles. It wasn't there in the early church. In fact, the Bible says, if things start to go easy, you should start to question. If you're being discouraged about the... the um, the, the way Christianity is being perceived or received in the world around you, cheer up. That's what Jesus said would happen. He said the servant is not greater than the master. If we were to expect things to be well-received and accepted, we've missed the point. Great King David's reign begins in dysfunction. But not only is that encouraging because it, it mirrors our life now, but it is, it is encouraging and we need to read this because it's only in dysfunction that we can see what it means to have a persevering faith. 
Only here, in the messiness of Israel, can we see that God indeed is not silent. He's active, bringing about his purpose. Only here can we see those who look small in faith will wind up being great in the kingdom of God. And only here can we see those who boast in worldliness and walking by sight will be cast down. And so we need to look at this passage. Let's look at David. Let's let's start by him, which may seem surprising because throughout this section, David can seem almost passive and indifferent, maybe aloof. He doesn't seem to be doing what we would do in this particular situation. How is he a persevering, showing persevering faith? Well, let's look at, look at this. First, a persevering faith doesn't need, doesn't have the impulse to need and earn a status that God has already granted. David doesn't feel the temptation to act out of insecurity and defensiveness, trying to establish something God, by his word, already told David. Did you see how chapter 2 begins? The very first thing that happens after David is anointed king, it's not a big parade, it's not this honeymoon period of the people rejoicing about this new king that, that is supposed to right all the wrongs of Saul. The very first thing that happens after David is anointed king is Saul's old general comes out and anoints some other guy. One nation, two kings, right off the bat, he has to face opposition. Right off the bat, he faces a civil war as as Abner, Saul's old uh, general, anoints Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be king creating a civil war between the north and Saul's men and, and David in the south. Not only did, did David have to, to face Saul's son now, but he also has to face Abner. And everything we get from this account shows us that Abner was an imposing figure. Not only was he this great military soldier and general, but he represents all the allure of humanism, all the, the allure of worldly strength. He puts up Saul. Saul again. Because he believed that that it wasn't going to be some faith in a promise of an unseen God that would win the day, but things that can be done in human terms. And what made Saul great? Well, that certainly would have gotten passed down in his genes. So let's take his son, because Saul was known as the image of what a king should be. Strong and tall. Abner possessed incredible influence. He, by his word, was able to be a kingmaker. And people would follow his, his selection. And by choosing Saul's son, he's opposing David. Scoffing at David's faith. In chapter 3, we know that Abner is well aware that the promises of God already by the prophets said that David should be the man. But Abner has his own plan. He has little time for things that you can't see and touch. Now Abner makes the first move. He encroaches upon uh, David's territory. 
But he knows that if he faces David straight out, that it would be an unpopular move. So in his shrewdness, he plays a game. And that's the battle that we see, starting in verse 12. He goes not to David, but to to David's chief general, and he baits him into a competition. That's what verse 14 says. It it almost uses the word sport. Let's, Let's just have a contest. You bring out your men, I'll bring out my men. But Abner's not fooling anybody. He wants war. He wants to show the strength of his power. He wants to bait Joab, David's general, into a conflict that would show his own, Abner's own strength. Abner is shrewd, he's assertive, he's powerful, and he's utterly faithless. But think about this from David's perspective. This newly minted king How would you respond to the challenge to your authority? How would you respond to those who reject your kingship? The temptation would be to to react in insecurity, to be defensive. It sounds like a lot of the advice that we hear. When challenged, don't don't be pushed around. Don't look weak. Stand up for yourself. Is that how you respond when threatened? when your authority is undermined, when your identity is attacked, when your beliefs are scoffed at? Do you want to show forth uh, force, to meet strength with strength, to prove your opposition wrong? What's the godly response? You know, it's striking that David never attacks Abner throughout this whole section. For three chapters, he doesn't go to war. And he doesn't go to war with the north either. He doesn't, he doesn't battle Ishbosheth. Why? Well, first, because David knows that it's a no-win situation. He might be defending his reputation, but what would happen really to the kingdom of God if he goes to war with those he is supposed to reign over? I think that uh, the battle in verse 12 is actually a parable of what would happen. Twelve men from the south go up against twelve men from the north. Guys, that's symbolic. It's, it's a vying for who the true Israel is. And did you see what happens at the end of that battle? What happens when Israel fights Israel? That says all 24 fell that day. When Israel fights Israel, everybody loses. David knows if he's to fight the people that God put him as king over, then everyone would lose. Oh, David acts differently. He even begins his reign by offering a treaty to those who were loyal to Saul, those in Jabesh-Gilead. That's verses 5 through 7. And he resists going to war with Abner or, or Ishbosheth. He does everything in his power to, to resist the destruction of this nation that God put him king over. But I want to argue this isn't weakness, it's not passivity. This is actually active faith. You see, David kept his eye on the kingdom of God rather than his own reputation. He trusted that God has made him king over this whole nation. And so he was acting like the king over all of them. He trusted in God's word. And he wouldn't go to war to prove his status. God was good to his word. And what we see at the end of chapter 4 is remarkable. Without David needing to lift a finger, Saul's kingdom sputters out. 
and the last remaining man dies out. There's only one other remaining uh, uh, descendant of, of David, Mephibosheth, and he himself is incapable of leading the nation. So a persevering faith actively believes that God, even despite circumstances, is at work and that his word alone matters. What about you? When challenged, when your authority seems to be uh, questioned, I think so often we put the authority into other people's hands rather than in God's hands to determine who we are. Who defines you? Are we giving too much power to the world? Too much power to those voices that say that you need to, to prove it? God's message to you is that you are a son and daughter of the king. That you should be established by his word and walk by faith. The second obstacle we see in this passage to a persevering faith is a desire to take justice into our own hands and to seek revenge. And this is a messy section of Scripture. There is so much anger here. Anger that cries out for justice. And all the while, God being absent, or seemingly absent. Just to recap a little bit, it begins with, um, with Abner selecting Ishbosheth as king. And then going to war with, uh, with Joab. And then Abner um, uh, picking on in, in the, the south, picking on the, the southern kingdom. Asahel decides he's had enough of it and then chases after Abner. When Abner tries to resist going to war with Asahel, he decides, well, enough is enough, and he kills him. And instead of getting rid of the pursuit, he actually picks up Asahel's two brothers, who then try to seek revenge. Until finally in chapter 3, he goes back to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth uh, is offended at Abner, insults him, and so he decides, I'm going to betray Ishbosheth, and goes to David. Well, Joab decides, I've had enough of that. I'm sick of Abner. I'm going to go and have revenge on him. And he decides to kill uh, Abner. After that, two men decide they are going to try to appease um, David by killing off Ishbosheth. And I know you didn't follow any of that, but what you did get is the fact that this is bloody. I don't care what uh, Quentin Tarantino movie you've ever seen, this is far bloodier than that. It's violence and, and um, a, a thirst for justice and revenge. But what we see is it never balances out. One person goes to war because they're offended and they try to, to, uh, uh, to balance the scales. And in their act of balancing the scales, they wind up picking two more enemies up. And in their act of trying to get revenge, they wind up continuing the cycle again and again. And it's just overwhelming. But more than a movie, it resonates with real life, doesn't it? We're constantly searching for that sense of justice and equality. 
And if we sense that God really isn't doing it or some higher power or some karma isn't going to step in and do it for us, then we feel compelled to take it on ourselves to bring about the vengeance. We need to right those scales. But justice is never perfect. Look at this narrative. Every person who takes it into their own hands to balance things out and to find justice on their own has a skewed view of justice. Asahel's brothers want vengeance, but they should never have gotten vengeance according to the law. Their brother pursued this guy. He picked the fight. What's the answer? What's the answer when we, we see injustice constantly around us and we feel compelled to be a vigilante and step into the fray? Well, the answer isn't passivity, letting wickedness reign. Yes, we should stand up for what's right, but we should be able to distinguish between what justice is and what vengeance is. Moreover, we should be worried about our own heart and how much we've let our moral outrage overwhelm us. Are we, are we so consumed with, with trying to be uh, the, the judge and jury that we have neglected to see the sin in our own lives? Are we so demonized and condemned those that get us upset that we've overlooked the fact that we ourselves stand condemned? Now take a moment and, and every time throughout a day, whenever somebody gets your ire up, whenever somebody uh, just, just triggers something in you, write it down. And at the end of the day, look at all those things, or perhaps at the end of the week, look at all those things and see if you've measured up with the things you've judged others with. Most of us will find we don't stand a chance on our own scales. We paint ourselves into a corner, demanding justice. But we miss out on the hypocrisy of it all. What about David? Where is his role in this cycle of violence? Well, as I've mentioned, he does not go to war with Abner. He doesn't go to war with Ishbosheth. In fact, he doesn't even hold a grudge. Chapter 3, Abner, who had, has been his chief adversary this whole time, turns traitor and comes back to him And David welcomes him back. What's he doing? Is he being a doormat here? No. He's keeping the kingdom of God. He's he's keeping that in the forefront of his mind. Rather than revenge, he's able to forgive and welcome him back because his goal is for this united kingdom that he is supposed to reign over. He's able to swallow his pride and his impulse because he knows that it's not his role, ultimately. Even him, as, as judge, it's not his role to mete out all justice. That's remarkable. And in fact, when others do take revenge, David prosecutes them. In chapter 3, when Joab goes to kill Abner, David is upset about this. He actually rebukes Joab. When, when Ishbosheth, the rival king, is murdered by these ruffians, that, that was something that would have greatly benefited David. But instead of it, him saying, oh, great, finally, you took care of my mess, he says, that's not what the law required. You acted out of flesh, not out of faith. 
he, he prosecutes and, and punishes them for their crime. All because he's walking by faith, not by sight. See, it's only in the gospel. Because only the gospel says that God is the one who sees and will judge. I know that might sound strange to some of you. Wait a second, I thought, I thought the gospel meant that God didn't judge. I thought the gospel meant that God forgave. No, if, if we believed that that was all that, that there was, then we would feel compelled ourselves to bring in some sort of justice. If it was simply that God was just going to overlook all sins, then it would actually really bother us that there's injustice in the world. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God sees. He sees it all. And the cross isn't a sign that God overlooks it. It's a sign that God has dealt with all of it. We can stand here forgiven, not because God overlooks our sin, but because God acts justly. There will be a judgment day. We're assured of that because there was a judgment day on the cross as God put to death sin. But we need to walk by the gospel, not our own sense of, of vigilante justice. It's only in the gospel that we can have peace. Finally, a persevering faith rests in God's grace alone. You know, I've drawn attention here to some of the examples of faith from David. But the point isn't to look at David's faith or some great characteristic that he has, that he had some amazing heroic ability to believe. In fact, reading the Bible that way will actually disempower us if we constantly look to heroes in the Old Testament scriptures, we're going we're gonna to start to build them up and think, well, I can't do that. I'm constantly falling short. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you know you're not like that. You feel like you faced the tests of faith, and you failed. Maybe all it's gotten you is the, a New Year's resolution to get out of bed and try church one more time but you constantly feel as though that ship has sailed. You look more like Abner, who's taken a very secular approach to life. Maybe you start to feel as though you don't have that persevering faith. The point here is not to look at David's faith or even Israel's faith. In fact, if you look closer, what you see is their failures throughout. Yes, even David. Even David, who in most parts of this narrative looks like he comes out clean. Right there in verse 2, we see this small glimmer of a major problem. Verse 2 alludes to his many wives. He has two there in verse 2. Chapter 3, somehow, without even mentioning it, he picks up four more wives. And that doesn't even mention Michael, his first wife. Now this is not acceptable behavior. Sometimes we get this idea that in the Old Testament, polygamy was just there, and it was approved by God because heroes of faith had many wives sometimes. But if you look at Scripture, that's not the way it should be. Deuteronomy 17 makes clear, kings especially should not have multiple wives. And there's a very practical reason for that. David's many wives will lead to the major downfall of Israel. His many wives will mean many firstborn sons and many rivals for the throne. So when Solomon dies, we see all these sons 
and grandsons all fighting for each other throughout generations to, do, to have what we see prefigured here in this passage come to fruition you know, generations later where Israel is completely divided and lost. Now, the point isn't looking at David's example of faith. It's to be able to see even David shows the, the beginnings of the big fracture that will take place in Israel's history. I want you to let the mess of these chapters preach to you. If God never turns it back on these people, he will never turn his back on you. If, never, if God never turns his back on David in the midst of all of David's high position and yet moral failings, God is not going to turn his back on you. You aren't worse than David. You're not worse than these pathetic characters. You're not much better than them either. You're not worse than these pathetic characters. Yet just in a little while, God is going to approach David and give him an everlasting covenant with these people. David's response throughout this section isn't despair, but it's faith. Faith. Trusting that God, despite what he sees around him, but despite even what he sees in himself, God will be good to his word. And to be clear, we're not talking about presumption. Oh yeah, yeah, you made a profession sometime in life, but you've lived a very secular life since then. No, that's no faith at all. We need to be warned by people like Abner, who claim to be the people of God, yet act completely irrespective of God. But a persevering faith is a faith that is able to live by the gospel, believing what God says about you, trusting that his promises are true. And like David, trusting that the crown he offers to you, the glory that he has through his son, is for you. He has grounded your hope. Do you have faith in that promise? Listen to how Thomas Watson puts it. He says, faith gives us a prospect of heaven. It shows us invisible glory. And he who has Christ in his heart and a crown in his eye will not faint. Oh, cherish faith. Keep your faith and your faith will keep you. When the pilot keeps his ship, the ship keeps him. What a great line. Nurture your faith, for it will keep you. The thing you think is going to get attacked constantly, which is everything that God promises. He says, if you nurture your faith, then it will keep you. Feed your faith. Strengthen it. Strengthen it with this, this meal. Strengthen it with the Word. Strengthen it with God's community around here. Strengthen your faith. And that will keep you in the midst of a world that's as messy or more messy than what we see right here in Scripture. Amen. Let's pray.